Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Stewardship Innovation for UPMC and ID Connect. Today, we are bringing you part two of our episodes where we are discussing the two different IDSA guidance documents for the treatment of drug-resistant gram-negative infections. The Breakpoints team is recording these episodes as a part of our gram-negative series that we plan on releasing over the next year. This series actually started with two episodes on resistance mechanisms in gram-negative pathogens, which featured Dr. Robert Bonomo and Ryan Shields, and we released those in October 2021, so if you want to go back and check them out, they're really, really interesting about all the nuances of how different bugs become resistant, mostly to the beta-lactams is what we focused on. And then for this part of the series where we go through the guidance documents, if you missed episode one of the content, be sure to go back to last week's episode and listen. There you'll learn all about how the guidance panel was formed, the vision of these guidance documents versus a guideline from the Infectious Diseases Society of America and the overall goal of these documents. And then our panelists discuss the recommendations and the controversies surrounding treatment for ESBLs. CRE or carbapenem resistant enterobacterialis, and then Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Today, in our next installment, we're working through the second document, which goes through recommendations for AMPC producing enterobacterialis, carbapenem resistant acinetobacter, and stenotrophomonas. So our first panelist is Dr. Pranita Tama, who made, she made her breakpoints debut last week, and we are thrilled to have her back for this episode. Pranita is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of pediatric antimicrobial stewardship at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Her research focuses on improving our understanding of the mechanisms of gram-negative bacterial resistance, so perfect for this podcast episode, improving available diagnostics to identify gram-negative resistant pathogens, and then optimizing our therapeutic choices for these infections. She has funding from the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, and AHRQ to investigate these areas. Pranita is also just a genuinely fun and awesome person, and she's probably one of the most productive people I've ever met, so I'm sure all of our listeners have read several of her papers. So Pranita, welcome to Breakpoints. Oh, thank you so much, Aaron. It's really great to see you and Sam again. Thanks for having me. Next, Dr. Sam Aiken joins us. Sam is a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious diseases at the University of Michigan and an adjunct clinical professor of pharmacy at Michigan's College of Pharmacy. Sam completed his PGY-1 residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and then an ID fellowship at the University of Houston. He previously served as an ID pharmacist at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he became one of the world's leading experts in immunocompromised infectious diseases. So Sam has seen some of the weirdest infections, bacterial and fungal, and really, really is a leader in this, in this area. Sam is legitimately one of the smartest people I've ever known, also one of the best people I've ever known, and even better... This episode is his moment, listeners, because he has earned himself the nickname of Steno Sam from his work in immunocompromised patients. So Sam, welcome to Breakpoints. Can't wait to talk Steno with you. I can't wait either. Glad to be back. Thank you for having me again. Thank you guys so much. I'm really excited. I think the AMPC section is my favorite of the six um, in the guideline document. They're all fantastic, but I just have a really soft spot in my heart for Enterobacter. I think it's the coolest bug. So I'm very excited to talk about this with you today. Before we get into AMPC, I do want to thank and acknowledge the other authors of these guidance documents. Those include Dr. Amy Mathers, 
Neil Clancy, Robert Bonomo, and David Van Dyne. Just truly incredible work from the six of you, such useful resources for the infectious diseases community and beyond. So thank you to you both and to your, your team for this, these documents. And without further ado, Pernita, do you want to kick us off with the AMPC section and talk about how you decided which organisms you were going to focus on and the treatment recommendation framework within those organisms that produce AMPC? Yeah, no, thank you, Erin. And I agree with you. I think MCs were definitely very interesting and sort of, I think a lot of us have learned certain acronyms and certain just general dogma about MC. So it was definitely fun to sort of dig deep into the literature and, and get an understanding of what we actually know about these organisms. So for the sake of the guidance, we're focusing specifically on MC producing organisms in the Enterobacterialis. And these are um, class C serine beta-lactamases, and they can pre be produced by a variety of different Enterobacterialis organisms, and generally by one of three mechanisms. They could be what we call inducible chromosomal resistance. The second would be stable chromosomal derepression. The third would be plasmid-mediated AMCs. So for the guidance, we focus on the treatment of, of Enterobacterialis infections, with a moderate high likelihood of inducible AMPC expression. And I'll clarify which organisms in a, in a minute. But what we mean by this is that there's increased AMPC production um, from inducible AMPC expression. So the gene is there, something sort of triggers it to start producing a lot of the AMPC enzyme, and then it starts to hydrolyze certain antibiotics. And most notoriously, the third generation cephalosporins like ceftriaxone, cefotaxime, and ceftazidine. So in this scenario, you could have Aaron's favorite bug, an enterobacter cloacae, that tests susceptible to ceftriaxone. You put your patient on ceftriaxone, and then you could see within a couple of days, potentially, that the MICs now have increased a fair amount, and potentially it's no longer considered an active agent. And I'll just briefly mention for the two other mechanisms this quote, stable chromosomal derepression. What we mean is the gene is there. There's something, a promoter or something has been turned on in, in, that, bacterial, in, in that bacterial DNA that's basically causing this gene to always be expressed. So the enzyme is always there. So the organism would always test ceftriaxone resistant. Um, and for plasmid-mediated AMCs, these are commonly found in organisms like E. coli or salmonella. Again, the gene is present. So AMPC is being produced, so you'd expect it to test as not susceptible to ceftriaxone. So th these really pose less treatment challenges because when you got, get your susceptibility report, you would see it, the isolate was ceftriaxone resistance, resistant. So the derepression organisms are much trickier because when you get your susceptibility report for these organisms, they, they would test susceptible generally and then it's sort of up to you as the as astute um, ID pharmacist or physician, or, or you don't have to be ID trained, to sort of think about that there's this potential that I could put this patient on ceftriaxone and the isolate actually might become resistant. So I, I do want to talk quickly about the acronyms that Erin mentioned. Um, I know that when I was in uh, residency, we used to use the word space all the time. And then I remember my friend at Penn used to use the word spice. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're called space organisms. And then I realized as we're sort of putting these together that we're, we're both really wrong and we really shouldn't be using these acronyms. And I think there's several reasons because I'll give you an example. The C in spice or space, a lot of times people think it's, oh, citrobacter species. 
But there really are differences even within genera. So for example, Citrobacter frondii is known to har harbor a chromosomal AMC gene, whereas certain species such as Citrobacter coceri does not. So just sort of, you know, the, this broad S for serratia, P for whatever you consider proteus or whatever people are, C for Citrobacter, it's a, there's a lot more details involved in that. So that's one of the reasons we, sh we shy away from some of these acronyms. And the second, which is another sort of interesting fun fact is a lot of times people think of the I in spice as indole positive proteus. And indole positive proteus currently refers to organisms like proteus vulgaris and proteus penari, which actually do not contain chromosomal AMC genes. And the reason this indole positive proteus that came into these acronyms came about was in the past, proteus retgeri, which has now been renamed providentia retgeri, and Proteus morganae, which is now Morganella morganae, these have been renamed and they're no longer in the genus of Proteus. So this idea of, quote, indole positive Proteus representing organisms at risk for AMPC, inducible AMPC production is now really a misnomer. So just sort of tying up this, this topic of which organisms do we focus on, we've decided to focus predominantly on Enterobacter cloacae Klebsiella orogenes and Citrobacter frondii as the most problematic organisms for inducible AMC. And it, this is really because there's both in vitro data as well as clinical reports suggesting that about 8 to 40% or so of these isolates in various clinical studies, which I'll definitely admit have a, have a lot of limitations, but the data suggests anywhere from about 8 to 40% of the time, these organisms recovered in a clinical isolate, testing susceptible to septraxone, might become resistant um, within a few days um, of exposure. There's definitely some other important organisms to keep in mind. Serratia morganella, uh, Morga morganae providentia species, species, which are on, based on our review of the literature, it seems that their likelihood of um, significantly expressing AMC in clinical isolates is less than 5%. So despite their inclusion in a lot of mnemonics, their likelihood it, it seems to be less based on the clinical literature we have, as well as some mutational analysis studies that, ca that came out of Europe. And I will also mention, and, and Sam, uh, I'll let Sam name his, mention his, the mnemonic he likes to use, which I think is really cool. There are some less encountered pathogens like Hafnia, Alvei, Citrobacter youngae, Yersinia enterocolitica, which definitely have in chromosomal AMC genes that can be induced. Unfortunately, there's not been a lot of clinical investigations into these organisms. And you know, we realize there may be many more that we just don't encounter a lot that haven't been studied. So we, def we elected to focus on Enterobacter cloacae, Citrobacter frondii, what am I forgetting? Klebsiella orogenes, sorry. So we focus on those and what we suggest to the clinician is if you have these growing from anything other than sort of like a simple uncomplicated cystitis, you probably wanna sort of think twice about using a drug like ceftriaxone, even if it tests susceptible because of this risk of resistance emerging. For all the others, the serratia morganella, providentia, hafnia, Yersinia enterocolitica, you know, my personal feeling is, and we kind of outlined two options in the, in the um, guidance, where one, you could say, I'm going to go by the susceptibility results. So it's susceptible to ceftriaxone. and I'm going to go with it, watch the patient carefully, make sure they're clinically responding, great. The second option, which is also very fair, and particularly if you're talking about 
high burden infections like a ventriculitis and endocarditis and osteo would be to say, you know, I know the risk might be lower or we're not really aware what the risk actually is, but I think I'd feel more comfortable using a drug like cefepime, which we know is able to withstand hydrolysis from AMCs much better. So we definitely think both of those approaches are very reasonable for these other organisms beyond the sort of Enterobacter, Cloakey, Klebsiella orogenes, and the, the third one. Sorry. Yes. Enterobacter orogenes being renamed has just been tragic for all of us. And I Mm -hmm. thank you for that. That was a fantastic overview. And before Sam, I definitely want you to talk about your acronym. Speaking of things renaming, I actually, Sam's taught me most of what I know about renaming because I reviewed a paper of his once about the bugs formerly known as pseudomonas. And then I reviewed it and I was like, Sam, only like half of these used to be a pseudomonas species. And I made him retitle the paper and he's really mad at me, but, uh, I didn't know that so many things had former genus, which really does impact some of these teaching mnemonics. So it's really important to know where things came from. The point I want to emphasize for listeners is that I love, and I think that's why I love AMC so much is that we talk about AMC producing a lot and it's not all AMCs are not created equal and every organism's AMC is different. And so the AMC in Enterobacter is not the same as the AMC in Pseudomonas or Serratia. They're expressed differently. Some express very efficiently, some don't different quantities, different ability to hydrolyze different beta lactams, even in, across different bugs. And so that I don't think we talk about as much, or maybe it's not as appreciated that AMC is just not this one big bucket thing. And I think you guys outline that so nicely. And especially, you know, using third generation cephalosporins for serratia when possible, I think is really helpful to know. And so that that's all awesome. So with that being said, Sam, do you want to launch into then your acronym for how you remember the ones that are truly breed inducible resistance? And then maybe you can quickly review some of the treatment recommendations that you guys provide. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, you know, one thing uh, to emphasize too, is I I really think it's very important to understand the history of ID and understanding like where treatment recommendations came from and all these sorts of things. So something that, you know, I I went down a deep rabbit hole for AMPCs when working on this. And it's just interesting to note and just driving home the point that not all AMPCs are created equal in an organism is that AMPC was originally named uh, based on an ampicillinase found in E. coli. Nobody thinks of E. coli as an AMPC producing organism, but it's right there on the chromosome and can be selected for under the right circumstances. So really just having an AMPC on its own or that gene being present in the chromosome doesn't necessarily mean that the organism isn't going to do funky things. And likewise, the absence of an AMPC doesn't necessarily mean that it can't select for resistance. A great example of that is Klebsiella oxytoca, which has a class A cephalosporinase, which does some very uh, nasty things to a susceptibility profile, uh, but isn't an AMPC. Uh, so we don't include it in these sort of uh, historic uh, mnemonics. So the mnemonic that we came up with, or you know, where we worked on was, heck yes, which I, I just love. Hafnialvii, Enterobacter cloacae, Citrobacter frundii, Kleb aerogenes, and Yersinia enterocolitica. I admit there's not much information out there on uh, Yersinia enterocolitica causing infections, but to make it heck yes instead of heck, we, you know, that's kind of in there. So the reason why I think it's both good and bad, mnemonics, mnemonics do have a place to help people remember things, but as mentioned, they can overly simplify things. So certainly not all citrobacters are created equal by any means. Um, Citrobacter uh, cozeri absolutely does not have an inducible AMC enzyme to worry about, but it has its own special enzyme, CKO. Um, there's just really all sorts of differences there. Klebsiella 
you have club pneumonia, which is the classic, doesn't really have too much from a beta-lactamase perspective. Then you have club uh, aerogenes, which does have an inducible AMC, and as mentioned, club oxytoca, which can have a, uh, an extended spectrum uh, beta-lactamase class A on its chromosome. So just within a genus, you really do have to differentiate it to at a species level. And sometimes the mnemonics can obscure the fact that both the patient and the specific organism matter. So looking a little bit more at the, the treatment recommendations, you know, the, the sort of gold standard I'd say for these organisms is, is a carbapenem. Um, that's the safe fallback for these high level AMC producing organisms. But there's been a lot of investigation in terms of whether alternatives are uh, feasible and, and, and reasonable to do. And I think the preponderance of the evidence uh, suggests that cefepime is a fine alternative for most cases of uh, the AMC-producing organisms. Um, there's decent retrospective data suggesting that it's just fine. Uh, and the reason for that is that unlike other cephalosporins, um, which uh, are readily hydrolyzed by chromosomal AMCs and AMC enzymes, uh, cefepime is not. It's not a good inducer of AMC production and it's pretty stable against um, uh, hydrolysis. So it turns out that clinically, it's a pretty fine option to use. And so for patients who you have a defined susceptibility profile or are not critically ill, it's a reasonable thing to go ahead and use cefepime as a preferred alternative for high-level AMCs. The, alter the exception to this is MICs in the four and eight range, which uh, CLSI considers to be susceptible dose dependent. That wasn't necessarily based on clinical literature, just more on uh, PKPD literature. And by and certainly the PKBD literature suggests we can dose up to a level of an MIC of eight, but the clinical evidence suggests that isolates with these uh, MICs in the four and eight range might have actually picked up ESBL type enzymes, and they may be uh, prone to failure with treatment with cefepime. So we do yeah. suggest against the use of cefepime for isolates with MICs in the four and eight range. So Sam, in that susceptible dose dependent, CLSI says that dose is two grams Q8. That's the dose though you're recommending for MICs even less than or equal to two, correct? Correct. And the guiding philosophy that we had can be best summarized as go big or go home. So if you're going to use uh, beta-lactam for a serious infection, especially pneumonias, high burden infections, we, you don't want to necessarily muck around with underdosing. Cefepime in particular has a hugely variable exposure profile and can really run into some issues with, with underdosing. So our guiding philosophy for, for dosing beta-lactams in general was to use the maximum tolerated dose. We do suggest lower doses for cystitis. They're incredibly renally cleared, and, and this is just a lower burden infection, so we think we can get away with the lower doses. But for patients with serious uh, systemic infections, certainly uh, suggest using the higher doses just to ensure that we're achieving not only a 40% or so free time above MIC, but multiples of 100% free time above MIC and maximizing PKPD dosing. Yeah. And the guidance documents, there's a really nice table of dosing if our listeners are able to check this out. And they do not only recommend maximum tolerable dose, but also give specific indications for when to consider prolonged infusions of agents, including even our novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, which package insert for, let's say, ceftoltezo says over one hour and ceftaz AV says over two hours. But they do give acknowledgement that you can administer these drugs over three hours, even continuous infusions for most of the cephalosporins, which is fantastic. Can you, Sam, speaking of the novel agents, can you explain what their role, if any, would be in the treatment of AMPC producing infections? Yeah. And I, I, one thing I do want to clarify too, is that when we say AMPC producing infections here, we're only strictly referring to the enterobacter rallies. It's worth emphasizing that including the acronym, heck yes, we don't include pseudomonas in there. And the reason being is that for, say, the heck yes organisms or the AMPC-producing enterobacterales, 
there's great alternatives that don't have the issue of resistance development on therapy. As we noted in the last uh, episode of Breakpoints, it was Pseudomonas, yes, it does absolutely harbor an AMC. It absolutely selects for AMC-mediated uh, resistance on therapy. But the, there's, the carbapenems are not a good alternative because they select for resistance just as frequently as the AMC-producing organism. So you have to sort of weigh the differences in treatment approach for bioorganisms. And Pseudomonas is just in a different realm because any drug you throw at it, it's going to develop resistance on therapy. So I do want to emphasize that. Now, talking about the novel agents, um, really we have uh, ceftolazane, tazobactam, ceftazidine, maybe bactam, and cefiterocol. I'm not going to mention the carbapenem combinations here because carbapenems on their own are generally active against these organisms. So there's the addition of an inhibitor doesn't really get you much. So looking at ceftolazane, tazobactam, you might think based on the pseudomonas experience is great. It's very stable against AMC hydrolysis. It doesn't select for AMC production. And it seems like that would be a great drug for an AMC producing enterobacter alleys. But unfortunately, the fact is that it does not hold up very well against AMC producing enterobacter alleys at all. It's very labile to hydrolysis by uh, enterobacter alleys AMC and really is not a viable treatment option because tazobactam does not inhibit AMC whatsoever. So ceftolazane tazobactam is not a very good treatment option for these uh, AMC-producing enterobacter alleys. Ceftazidine may be bactam, on the other hand, probably is a viable option. There's uh, AB bactam is a great inhibitor of the class C beta-lactamases. Ceftaz is labile to hydrolysis by AMCs, but adding AB bactam restores that activity. We don't have great clinical data that it is a perfectly good option, but certainly based on the experience with ESBLs, and other CRE, we have no reason to suspect that ceftazabi would be a bad option. So if you have somebody who has a co-infection or needs to avoid a carbapenem, for example, they're on valproic acid or something like that, um, this is an absolutely fine option, most likely. We don't have great clinical data, but it is what it is. Cefiterocol as well uh, is probably a fine option. It's not very well hydrolyzed by AMCs. You know, no reason to think that it would do poorly uh, based on the clinical literature that we have available to us. That said, there um, are certainly cases where ceftazabine and cefiterocol resistance can be selected. And Erin uh, has, has worked on some of this with her colleague, uh, Ryan Shields, who just made, has made a career out of breaking brand new drugs and publishing on it. And unfortunately, in uh, these uh, Citrobacter youngae, especially, you can get actually cross resistance through AMPC mutations in ceftazabine and cefiterocol. So that'll be something to keep an eye on as, as these drugs get used more frequently, is whether they hold up as very good AMPC drugs. Yeah, I think, yes, we do at Pittsburgh. Come to Pittsburgh. It's fun. Um, I'll give Pernita a shout out here too, though. Both Pernita and Ryan in the past year or so have published absolutely fascinating case reports on sulfidericol resistance developing after only cefepime exposure in Enterobacter. And I just, I think that's fascinating. Again, I'm like, I love AMC. I won't continue to digress here, but so knowing a patient's recent antibiotic exposure and history can be really helpful in, in selecting these things as well. So last, to close out our AMPC discussion, the last beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor I think we should talk about is Piptazo. This comes up a lot, especially at, on my ID consult service and teams. I get asked all the time with polymicrobial wounds, intra-abdominals, maybe you have enterobacter there, but also enterococcus, strep, other things you want to cover. And, you know, people want to go home on Zosin continuous infusion. Is that okay for these three pathogens that we're targeting in this section? I'm happy to start and Sam can add. I, you know, as Sam very nicely said, tazobactam, so the tazobactam of piperacillin tazobactam, 
is less effective at inhibiting AMC hydrolysis compared to the newer beta-lactamase inhibitors such as avibactam, relibactam, vaberbactam. So traditionally, there's definitely in vitro data giving us pause with tazobactam as an inhibitor for AMC production specifically. I think the question of the role of piptazo treating enterobacterial is at moderate to high risk of clinically significant inducible MC is still a little uncertain. Just to give you an overview of what the literature shows, there was a, a meta-analysis in 2019 that summarized the findings of eight observational studies, and it didn't find a difference in mortality between piptazo and carbapenems. There were a fair amount of limitations to, to, to really all of the eight studies included here. But there were two observational studies included in this meta-analysis. One of them, the numbers were small, but at least numerically looking at 30-day mortality, it was double in the piptazo group, something like 15% versus 7%. And in another one, it was 45% versus 11%. So the numbers were small. As a, as a whole, the meta-analysis did not show significant differences, but there were at least two studies that, that kind of raise a little bit of alarm bells that maybe there is something more here. I think the best data we have so far is um, the Merino 2 study. So this was a pilot unblinded clinical trial. They looked at somewhere in the range of about 70 patients or so who had a variety of organisms that are often um, are known to have inducible MCs. And I will say that, I mean, they did a really good job in this study but there are a couple of organisms like serratia and um, some of them that we know have a lower potential versus the enterobacter cloacae. So there was a little bit of higher, more likely to produce and not as likely to produce. And these patients were randomized to four and a half grams every six hours standard infusion piptazo or a gram Q8 of mirapenem. They used a composite primary outcome. It included things like 30-day mortality, clinical failure, micro failure, um, and there weren't any differences observed. But when you start to look at each of the components of the composite, they really go in different directions, favoring piptazo or favoring the carbapenems. Um, so I think that this is a good start, but I definitely find the results of the trial a little challenging to interpret um, in the absence of a larger RCT that can sort of guide us a little more on the role for piptazo. I'll say personally, and I think that the other authors of the guidance are in agreement and Sam can weigh in if he feels differently, I feel a little less confident using piptazo versus acephapine for the treatment of these organisms at high risk for MC production. So if I had to sort of place piptazo, I would put it somewhere um, lower down than cefepime, but, but higher up than, of course, ceftriaxone for these sort of the, the enterobacter cloaches and citrobacter frondiais and Gosh, I always forget one. And the Clemciella erogenes. Clemciella erogenes, sorry. You can just call it enterobacter erogenes if you need to. This Don't is a safe to. space. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, Sam, anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah I, you know, I think that was a really nice summary. Um, part of the issue with the retrospective data, uh, and this is not unique to AMC organisms, it's just there's a lot of noise in retrospective data and ID to begin with. So it's really hard to sort of account for confounding by or, or confounding by indication and, and just selection bias in patients. Part of the issue too with the AMCs in particular is that it often includes these organisms that frankly we shouldn't really care about in most cases from an AMC production standpoint like serratia. Uh, and so those being the most common organisms that they encounter in this group or potential group, uh, they really do sort of dilute out any potential effects and they lead to these sort of 
false negative studies where there is no difference between piptase or whatever and carbapenem. I, I do agree with uh, ultimately Pranita that I would put it somewhere below uh, cefepime, uh, but maybe a, not quite as bad as ceftriaxone. But I think if you look at the well-designed retrospective analyses, it shows a higher failure rate with piptazo or beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations. Even if those weren't necessarily statistically significant, you get maybe a doubling of uh, poor outcomes, including mortality. So it is another good example, though, of patients getting the quote-unquote wrong drug often very well do just fine uh, in most cases. So it's you know, really having to parse through this sort of um, information that you have there. But overall, yeah, we came down on recommending against treating AMC-producing organisms with piptazo, uh, and I, I think that's the right recommendation to make. Certainly, we could do studies or in very low inoculum infections, such as a line infection where the line's immediately removed, or cystitis. You probably don't even need to, you can use ceftriaxone, to be completely honest, because uh, there's no organism there to select for or induced. But we, we felt most comfortable recommending against using piptazo based on the preponderance of evidence there um, and a mechanistic rationale that it would not work. The other nice thing that we should mention about AMCs is unlike ESBL-producing organisms, AMC-producing organisms are quite often susceptible to trim, trimsulfa, Aaron's favorite drug, or uh, the quinolones. And so those are often actually very good viable treatment options for these patients that you can use to avoid carbapenems or cefepime or something like that. So always something worth considering with these organisms. I do love trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. It's like just such an underappreciated antibiotic, but no, I agree. If my mom was in the hospital with Enterobacter cloacae, I almost said erogenase, bacteremia, I would want her to receive cefepime instead of piptazo. And so I think that's the standard we hold it to. Let's move on now to carbapenem resistant acinetobacter then, the second pathogen in this second guidance document. I do want to point out for our listeners, we now have press release data for Delorobactam sulbactam, which is a new antibiotic that shows quite promise in the treatment of acinetobacter infections. And I want to point out that that's the first antibiotic that has ever shown promise in the treatment of acinetobacter infections. This guidance document was written prior to that, and so it is not included. And so we will be having the discussion of what the res what the treatment of carbapenem resistant acinetobacter, or as we will probably start to refer to it as CRAB uh, for ease of speaking about it at moving forward, what that landscape looked like before we have this new antibiotic on the horizon, which is really exciting, but not yet available. And we don't have the complete data for that yet. So before that, the CRAB landscape was quite frankly, a hot mess. And outside of polymyxins, nothing had really ever shown promise. And we, it's all over the board and we just use a combination of a hot mess of everything. And so let's talk about that. You guys, how did you even begin to sort through these recommendations? I imagine I'll go out on a limb and say, this was your most challenging section. Before getting to yeah. that, one question I have, don't yins up there in Pittsburgh call it a cat. Oh my gosh, we do. And so if anyone ever talks to anyone from UPMC, I, I could not figure that out when I moved to Pittsburgh, I was like, why do you call it a cat? What is going on? Why is this all over everything? Turns out it's from, we have a data analyst on our stewardship team, which I will say is such a blessing. And if your stewardship team can advocate for even a half FTE of a data analyst, it makes a world of difference. So we're very lucky to have him and he's been working there for a really long time. And in old, old, like 15 years ago, SunQuest days of how the bugs were coded in all of the data coding, ACAT was the code for acinetobacter. And so it's just become culture and that's just how it's referred to, which yes, is 
pretty funny. I had no idea for, and I was like embarrassed to ask for like the first year I worked there. I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing. And then I was like Googling. I was like, it's not even how you spell it. (laughs) (laughs) That is a Pittsburgh thing for sure. Yeah. I think crab was definitely a challenge. You know, this is actually the organism I believe that inspired us for the second version of the guidance to start using the term suggested approach over recommendation. Cause we realized that a lot of this is expert opinion and it's really meant to just guide your average clinician dealing with these tough organisms, understanding there's a lot of limitations to the literature. And, you know, I'll just sort of, I think one of the biggest challenges with crab is figuring out, is this a colonizing organism or is this actually causing someone to be sick? Most of the people, as everyone know, who, who get, um, quote, infections with crab have issues with their underlying host status. They're on a vent, they have extensive burns, there's all sorts of reasons why they might have poor outcomes. And to, you know, I, I just to kind of give you a parallel, I think many of us have seen fully susceptible acinetobacters grow from, from sputum, for example. The patients do just fine. We kind of ignore it. It's in the blood. Like, who cares? Someone coughed on the plate. But when you take look at an organism like E. coli, we've all seen very susceptible E. coli cause somebody to be extremely ill, right? Presenting with urosepsis and so forth. So there's something that just always kind of gives you pause with acinetobacter, like how big of a deal is this organism really? And is it more the badness we see is related to the types of posts for, for getting crab infections? So that obviously makes everything about crab and all the studies with crab challenging to interpret. Secondly, um, Acinetobacter, similar but possibly even worse than Pseudomonas, really has this ability to, to quickly develop resistance to all sorts of drugs. You know, one unique issue with, car- with crab is that almost always it's going to produce probably several, but at least one oxa-type carbapenemase. Um, it may also have several serine carbapenemases like KPCs, NDM, so it's not immune from them. And then several other um, resistance mechanisms, which is was really a podcast in and of itself, I think, to, to go through. But I think what was one of the most challenging things for us as we thought through treatment is there's really no, quote, standard of care regimen to compare other regimens with. We're almost comparing kind of bad stuff compared to other kind of bad stuff. You know, in vitro, we know that sulbactam um, at, at really... Um, high concentrations has a unique act, has unique activity against acinetobacter. This has been shown in in vitro studies, animal models, clinical outcomes data. However, particularly for the clinical data, there's a lot of limitations of the data, um, just like with probably all the observational studies we've, we've described. And a lot of times, almost half of the time, crab won't be susceptible to, to, um, to absolbactum. So thinking about what to do there is challenging. So The way we decided to frame the crab section is we generally think of sort of, quote, mild infections, which, to be honest, a lot of these might actually just be colonizing organisms. Times acinetobacter is a colonizer and not a true pathogen causing an infection. But what we think of when we're saying that is sort of cystitis, even though I realize that's kind of rare with acinetobacter, tracheitis maybe some sort of wound infections where there's really not hemodynamic instability. So that's what we're sort of quote, considering as, quote, mild infections. And for moderate to severe, which is obviously kind of the more real stuff, we have a slightly different approach. I'm going to save the Selbactam discussion to Sam because that's probably one of the most controversial areas here, the dosing and, and, and so forth. Um, but I'll just kind of very briefly as an overview say that 
you know, what we decided to do was that for sort of, quote, milder infections, we thought that a single agent um, might be sufficient. We tend to favor Ampsilbactam. We do put a line in there that we favor high dose Ampsilbactam, acknowledging that standard dosing is probably reasonable for mild infections caused by crab isolates susceptible to Ampsilbactam. And particularly if you have a patient with intolerances or, or toxicities that precludes the use of higher dose Ampsilbactam. But again, I'll, I'll defer to Sam after to talk through the dosing a little more. And then other sort of options we put on the menu are minocycline, tigacycline, poly B, or colistin if it happens to be a cystitis, or cefiterocol. Once we start talking about the, quote, moderate to severe type infections, we felt that it was reasonable to think about two agents, ideally two active agents, but obviously you, you may not get that lucky. And this was largely because the limited clinical data supporting um, the effectiveness of any single agent. And we make this um, suggestion completely aware that there's there's actually, I didn't realize there was this many, but seven clinical trials we could find investigating the question of mono versus combo therapy for crab. Some of them include other organisms, but they do have a decent amount of crab isolates in all these studies. And really only one of these studies found any benefit with the use of combination therapy. I will mention that that one study did include higher dose amsilbactam, but there was all sorts of limitations with the study, even though it was technically a clinical trial. So we um, fully acknowledge that the clinical data to support our recommendation for using combination therapy for moderate to severe crab infections is very shaky, but it, it kind of came down to some of the reg regimens studied are not commonly used. They were underdosed. For example, um, none of the studies using colistin gave a loading dose and, and so forth. But we felt that with the data available that we would feel more comfortable, at least initially, for somebody with a truly moderate to severe crab infection to start with combination therapy. And then depending on how long you're treating and toxicities, then you could certainly think about, you know, continuing with potentially a single agent. Thank you for that. That is really helpful. I, it is just baffling how all these trials show no difference, but it feels so wrong to give polymix and monotherapy. And so here we are, Sam, can you talk a little bit about that Amsilbactam dosing strategy and what we're getting at here with, with acinetobacter, because I think that this rec is going to be higher than most people may have ever used in their clinical practice. And so if you could put some context to that, it'd be great. Yeah. So the, the context here is that, uh, as Pranita emphasizes, that the data with acinetobacter outside of pretty well-designed trials that told us what we can't do, the data for acinetobacter is otherwise pretty much garbage. Um, it, it's, it's unfortunate. It's a really or hard organism to study. So the Ampsilbactam dosage is, uh, I think, needless to say, somewhat controversial in the uh, guidance document, but it does have a rationale for it. And in addition to sort of splitting this, this mild and severe infection, something we do differentiate in the dosing recommendations is the dose for a susceptible organism, which unfortunately are the minority of Acinetobacter infections uh, that are susceptible to Ampsilbactam and those that are resistant. Now, the dosing that we suggest for the resistant organisms is up to 27 grams per day. And bear in mind that this is the total recommended dose of ampicillin plus sulbactam. So uh, it would be nine grams every eight hours, for example, which works out to three grams every eight hours of sulbactam. So when you look at it that way, it's really, yes, it's definitely more than the package insert, but it is not an absurd amount of a beta-lactam to be given, the three grams every eight hours. That doesn't seem to be too, too far out of the, the realm of possibilities. 
Where this dosing recommendation came from is both PKPD studies that suggest, uh, at least for the susceptible organisms, that you can use doses um, that high to, to achieve uh, maximal concentrations and, and pharmacodynamic targets. And the other is that we actually do have, believe it or not, safety data for these, or efficacy data as it were, in the form of basically case series and small trials from Greece, um, which has a large problem with carbapenem resistant acinetobacter. And at least in these studies uh, that are published, they don't show an overt to toxicity with doses even as high as 36 grams per day of ampicillin sulbactam. And uh, they show that, you know, potential efficacy, even against resistant isolates. I will be the first to admit that this is not the level of evidence that I usually like to have to uh, make dosing recommendations. I certainly don't like to make dosing recommendations on anecdote and uh, personal experience, which is ultimately what a case series is. Uh, but in serious infections caused by carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter, we unfortunately just don't have good drugs. So again, keeping with our general philosophy of maximizing dosing to try to maximize the uh, therapeutic potential, we came up with this, this much higher dose. But realizing that for susceptible organisms, you can get away with using a lower dose. And we suggest doing that in, in cases of susceptible organisms. We can always count on our European colleagues to give just a boat ton of beta-lactam. Um, I think the old KPC miropenem data, they were giving like 14 grams of miropenem a day via continuous infusions and whatnot. So always like to lean into that data to get maximum tolerable doses. Speaking of carbapen, so unison as a backbone for either solo treatment or in a combination because of the sulbactam component, the way that works and the data behind it, what other combinations should we consider? You guys say to not use polymyxin plus miropenem because there are two randomized clinical trials demonstrating no benefit of that combination in particular versus polymyxin alone. And so if I'm not doing polymiro, what combos would you consider? So the first thing I'd say is that if we had a great answer for you, that would be explicitly laid out in the guidance, which we don't, and so it isn't. The second is that we have a lot of understanding of, unfortunately, that combination therapy with colistin and carbapenem doesn't seem to be just much, much better than colistin alone. The one thing we do suggest is that if you have a, a drug that has in vitro activity, absolutely, by all means, use that drug. Um, we just suggest against using combo specifically with, say, colistin plus carbapenem, um, but we don't really lay out exactly what the, the rest of the combinations would be. We do suggest, maybe not based on the best evidence in the world, but we do suggest that Amsulbactam should be a component of that combination therapy. And then there are a couple of examples laid out that seem promising in hollow fiber infection models, which admittedly, as far as the level of evidence going to make a recommendation on is pretty, pretty low, which is why we say suggest, and we don't even say that you shouldn't necessarily use these combos, but they're things to consider are triple combination therapies with Amsulbactam, Carbapenem, and either uh, colistin uh, slash polymyxin or minocycline. In hollow fiber infection models, these actually seem to do decently well at eradicating organism when the dual or single combination therapies wouldn't, or single therapies would not. And so in my practice uh, for serious infections, I do favor these triple combination therapies. I generally err towards using uh, minocycline based because I just don't like the toxicity associated with polymyxins, but these are all reasonable things to use. One thing that I do want to emphasize, and Aaron mentioned this earlier at the beginning, is that we had really positive results for the um, Solbactam, Durlobactam trial, and I really honestly hope those results hold up because if that does, that just makes life a lot easier if it does. I also do want to say in the full conflict of interest disclosure that I have uh, received uh, support from Entasis Therapeutics 
Um, so I, I do want to say that, but I do hope this combination just holds up um, and it'll make just lives better for everybody with acinetobacter infections. And I have not received um, support from Entasis, and I will say I totally agree with Sam. I think the data looks good and I'm really hoping it pans out. We yeah. also happen to be an institution where we're very into the Absalbactam and minocycline combination and have just not been using polymyxins the way that I know a lot of other people um, have. So it's interesting because we, um, as we mentioned in the last podcast, we had had you and several other really great pharmacists review this document. And it's amazing. This was the, this was probably, I think the two areas of most controversy, there was probably five of you with like eight opinions, was the dosing <laughs> of Absalbactam, the use of combo and which should be the backbone. One of you was very, very adamant, or maybe more than one of you about a polymyxin backbone, someone with a, a Sulbactin backbone, and then someone with a, a minocycline backbone. So that was very interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I love getting curbside consulted from friends around the country about their acinobacter cases, because I'm just like, this is what we do, but there's truly no right answer. And so it's, I'm in a way refreshing to see that in the guidance document. I think you guys did a really good job with, with the data we have, which is all pretty bad. Let's have a minocycline appreciation moment though, since you both said you like using that in combination. This is one of the first times we're talking about minocycline and the tetracyclines, I think are an important class with important distinctions amongst the four of them, let's, let's, let's ignore OG tetracycline and just talk doxyminnow, taiga, and aravacycline and how you would position those for acinetobacter and the important differences among them, particularly as it relates to the dose in the package insert and whether or not that's going to have an effect in your patient. Sam, do you want to start? So the four tetracyclines, I'm also going to substitute Aaron's doxycycline with omatocycline. Doxycycline is not frequently tested. It doesn't have breakpoints for acinetobacter. It might work just fine. It has a great PKPD profile relative to other tetracyclines, but there's just not clinical published clinical literature on it for acinetobacter. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll write that one off for now, and I'll talk a little bit about minocycline, tigi, araba, and then we'll we'll touch on omatocycline. Um, Thank you. I totally forgot about omatocycline, but I definitely meant course. to mention it. So. Thank and you. it's a sad, it's a sad thing that the uh, OG tetracycline is gone. It had those those black and yellow capsules that reminded me of bumblebees. I really like counting those back in my retail days. Yeah, and those um, kid and those poor kids' teeth. What? Exactly. Um, no, cycling so, is an important point I meant to make though. Although I will say we test doxy and we do sometimes use it. Um, mm -hmm. minocycline is expensive. And so if it's a skin and soft tissue infection and you can send the patient home on doxy, it is an option just because maybe some of our listeners are not aware that it's, you yes. could get it. There's no break point, but you can get an MIC, but anyway, carry on with and the other Sam, four. Will you talk, can you just throw in the minnow oral versus IV? Cause we're very, Oh, absolutely. So yeah. One of the, one of the best points about minocycline is that it does have oral and IV formulations. There's absolutely no reason that if a person can take oral medications, that they should be not getting the oral formulations about hundred percent bioavailable. Um, it's, it's great. Um, you do have to pay attention to, uh, you know, the cationic, uh, interaction. So antacids, dairy products, whatever. And then it's, it can be a little bit of a beast on the stomach. So patients have to be able to sit up and take that, but there really is no reason to favor IV over oral for a person who has a functioning GI system. So, uh, minocycline probably has, I guess the best, uh, clinical evidence published. And again, this is really just kind of sort of case series, uh, but it, it, there's a really nice one out of uh, the Ohio State University detailing their experience with using minocycline for acinetobacter infections. 
And generally, it seems to do okay-ish, um, even on its own. The issue with minocycline is that perhaps the breakpoints are, and almost certainly, actually, the breakpoints are set way too high uh, based on just historical ways that breakpoints were set. So a lot of the organisms that we think are susceptible to minocycline probably are not. Those are the MICs of four and probably even two are, are just not really actually susceptible. Anyways, minocycline, I think, is the nicest option. Uh, it has the probably best adverse effect profile, least nausea-causing. Certainly at the higher doses, it can cause some neurologic effects, but we actually have safety data from the, uh, our neurology colleagues that in insanely high doses, like 900 milligrams uh, twice a day of minocycline are, are uh, safe and well-tolerated for post-stroke patients. So I have no problem pushing the dose up to 200 milligrams twice a day for acinetobacter. And that, in fact, is my, my usual practice when using it, uh, generally as part of combination therapy for serious infections. Uh, then we have tigacycline, which probably has the next best available evidence. Tigacycline is kind of a disaster from a PKPD perspective. Uh, it distributes everywhere, which in, in theory sounds great, but is terrible from a bloodstream infection standpoint, respiratory infection standpoint. So we have to push the dose to make it a meaningfully useful drug to 100 twice a day, which is double the label dose. And unfortunately, you run into dose-limiting nausea there. So if you have a patient who's already intubated and sedated, that's really not so much of a problem, or you have somebody who's already on a stable anti-emetic regimen and can tolerate it, then that's great and would suggest using that with a, a dose up to 100Q12. There is some clinical evidence there. There's a nice BAP trial of tigacycline versus imipenem for ventilator-associated pneumonia, and that mortality issue with tigy seemed to go away with this higher dose. It's just got a lot of dose-limiting toxicities there. So that's another fine option for acinetobacter, especially if you have polymicrobial infections or other reasons to want to use tigacycline. Um, and it's kind of variable whether you're going to get more or less bang for your buck out of tigy or, or minocycline. Aravacycline is kind of marketed itself, I guess, as tigy without the nausea, um, which I don't know if that's true. Certainly patients that I've seen on aravacycline um, have seemed to have uh, quite a bit of nausea as well. Um, the PKPD profile is really challenging. It's, it's got concentration-dependent protein binding, so you never quite know what you're going to get with it. But that's probably okay, you know, if that's your formulary tetracycline derivative. Um, and you'd use in the same situations as, as tigacycline. We don't have evidence that increasing the dose gets you any further benefit. I know anecdotally some people have been sort of doubling the arafacycline dose too because of the same PKPD issues. Certainly can't advocate that in the absence of published uh, clinical literature, um, but it's, it's there, it's an option. But there's really not much published on arafacycline at this point for acinetobacter. So I tend to prefer to use either minnow or tigy when available. The last one to talk about is omatocycline. Omatocycline at its base seems like a pretty attractive option in that it has oral formulation, it has IV formulation. It seems like in theory it would be a great drug. Um, the issue with that is, is really twofold. One from a clinical perspective is the MICs for gram negatives are very high and the exposures uh, relative to what you think you might need from a PKPD perspective are awful. So from an in vitro PKPD perspective, omatocycline looks terrible against acinetobacter. Then from a more uh, functional perspective where we want to use it as outpatient, maybe for these osteos with like these mixed polymicrobial infections, a bunch of gram positive junk, some anaerobes in there. And it would be great, except no insurance on earth covers these long these long courses for off-label uses. So right now it's a nightmare to get through insurance and I just can't come up with a compelling reason to use it. Um, it, it, it again, it looks awful from a gram negative perspective for, from a PKPD profile. So I, I don't, we recommend against using it there or considering it. And uh, certainly personally don't advocate for its use here.
Thanks, Sam. That was an excellent overview of the tetracycline class, all five, part of my era at the beginning of the relevant ones, and then RIP OG tetracycline. Should Speaking we talk of- about democlocycline as well? Uh, you want to throw that one in there? No, only you want to do that. So speaking of other things that we should not do other than using amatocycline for acinetobacter at this time, include phosphomycin, which was studied in one randomized trial in combination, no benefit really run away. And it's also not available intravenously in the United States. And this guideline document is guidance document is us centric rifampin and rifamycins has been studied multiple times in RCTs, no benefit there. And just as pharmacists know, for sure, a significant drug interactions and other toxicities and complications. So do not recommend using rifamycin, combination rifamycin products for acinetobacter. And then finally, and we talked about this in episode one with pseudomonas, but there's really no role for inhaled antimicrobials. It seems like a really good idea. Dump a lot of drug right at the site, especially for pneumonia, especially because of the issues with polymyxins in the lungs, um, which is out detailed nicely in the document. Um, but there's really a, a beautiful RCT showing absolute no benefit to inhaled antibiotics um, either for the treatment of HAP and VAP. And so no role in those. And with that, I think we close out our discussion on crab and we can move right into steno. So this is really. I know Sam's just been sitting there for the past hour being like, when do I get to talk about steno? It's our favorite. Um, and another time we get to appreciate minocycline. So another great role for the tetracyclines in the steno class, but Pernino, why don't you start us off with the framework for steno general treatment approaches. And then I think something really important, and you have background from this, from both your authorship and from the CLSI perspective on what's up with ceftazidime for stenotrophomonas. And is that something we should still be thinking about when we see this infection? Yeah, no, that's, that's really important, Aaron. And, and um, Sam is clearly at the edge of a seat. So I'll try to keep my part quick and, and let steno Sam take over. But, you know, steno, of course, also has a lot of the same issues as crab in terms of the challenges with differentiating infection, colonization, Again, it's very hard sometimes to interpret the clinical published data out there because you really don't know, was this a true infection or not? And what was the role of this drug in in terms of the outcomes achieved? But, you know, what we we elected to to suggest was that for mild infections for quote, you know, and I put mild in parentheses that many of these are probably colonizing and not actual infections and polymicrobial type infections where the role of steno as a pathogen is unclear, we suggest Trimethoprim sulfa, minocycline, tigacycline, levo or cefidrocol as monotherapy. And we have caveats included for each of these, and there are separate questions for each of these, providing more details. Um, you know, I will say I was kind of surprised when we were going through the literature how, even though we all think of um, trim sulfa as the sort of drug of choice for steno, there's a surprisingly very um, limited, rigorous clinical data supporting its use or investigating its use really for steno infections. However, we didn't see any kind of obvious clinic signals in the literature suggesting poor outcomes with it. So we definitely do seem to sort of favor it out of the regimens as sort of your go-to treatment for quote, mild infections. I'll let Sam talk through the nuances of some of these agents, particularly levo, because I know he loves to talk about some of the resistance issues with levofloxacin, but we definitely put a little bit of an asterisk with levo um, to just use it with caution. And we'll, and we'll, well, again, I'll let Sam explain why. I think for sort of moderate to severe disease, so by this, we're talking about the real stuff. And 
I think a lot of us who take care of patients with heme malignancies have seen bad bacteremias or hemorrhagic pneumonias. So this is, you know, the kind of population where you really don't want to mess around with, with a drug where you're really not sure how active it is or not. We actually internally had a little bit of back and forth about this. Some of us felt, you know, the data for any individual data is, for any individual agent is not as good as we would like. So we would suggest actually using a combination of two drugs, potentially, for example, trimethoprim sulfa plus a second agent like amino, tigi, levosifidrocol, sort of deciding between susceptibility results, toxicities, and, and so forth, until clinical improvements observed and then potentially going down to a single agent. There was definitely controversy here where others felt like a single agent is fine. And certainly some of our, our really astute pharmacy reviewers um, had given us that feedback so we ultimately sort of gave three approaches for these, quote, moderate to severe infections. Start up front with a combination of at least two agents, and then, you know, potentially peel back once you see the sort of improvement you want to see. The, the alternative could be if you really don't like adding a second agent to something like trimsulfa, assuming it's active, you know, start the trimsulfa. But if you're not getting an adequate clinical response in the next couple of days, really consider adding a second agent, even if the trimsulfa tested is susceptible. And the third is just thinking of a combination such as ceftazidime, avibactam, and estreonem. This can help overcome, this combination can help overcome some of the unique intrinsic beta-lactamases that stenotrophomonas produces. The in vitro data are conflicting between, there's all sorts of synergy tests out there for different combinations between trimsulfa, minnow, the quinolones, mostly with the most data with levo and sephiterocol. They are a little all over the place, um, as is the clinical outcomes data. But regardless of this, because of the sort of not as exciting data for any one of these agents and limitations with all of them, we decided to sort of um, suggest this approach. And in the guidance document, we go into a lot more details about the specific observational studies in vitro studies undertaken, what the results were, sample size, et cetera, to add some more detail there. And, and as Aaron mentioned, one of the, the, organ, the agents that's conspicuously missing is ceftazidime. Um, we don't suggest ceftazidime for the treatment of steno infections because of this intrinsic L1 metallobetalactamase that um, steno produces. It also produces a serine beta-lactamase referred to as an, an L2 beta-lactamase. But basically, this combination of the metallobetalactamase, serine betalactamase, we really expect it to render ceftazidime ineffective or inactive. You know, I, I think that unfortunately, and, and I, you know, I, I, I work with the CLSI, so obviously I understand sort of the, the growing pain sometimes with this, where we really do feel like the, it, it would be nice, and, and I'm hoping that the CLSI, and I know there's a group that's revisiting steno, so that's great. My hope is that they're going to decide to just call it intrinsically resistant and call it a day. But I definitely think that if that's not the case, there's definitely a revisiting of the breakpoints. Currently about 30 to 40% of steno, at least um, from a couple of observational studies published in the US, test susceptible to CEFTAS. But I really do think that if the, the breakpoints are revisited based on the, the more updated data we have, that this number will be a lot lower and, and hopefully, Again, my personal preference would be to just consider it intrinsically resistant. And I think for those of us who are stewards, while we're waiting on the CLSI to comb through the data and come up with a recommendation informed by, by the evidence that, that the best evidence they have, 
Um, we definitely want to make sure to educate our clinicians. And again, particularly when you think of sick hemolignancy type patients with steno, we really don't want to be using a drug like um, ceftazidime. I think that's kind of maybe the main stuff I want to say. I mean, I'll hand it over to Sam because I'm, I'm sure he's like ready to explode with all sorts <laughs> of fun facts he wants to share. I will comment. I, so I did review the guidance documents, which was an honor. And I learned how little data there is to support Bactrim for steno. And I, you know, going into it, I was like, of course we use trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for steno first line, you know, here's the dose. And I have admittedly never deep dove into why that is. And anecdotally in my clinical practice, it works. And so I was a little shocked and it was a little eye opening to see how scarce that data is to support that drug for this bug. Um, but Sam talk to me about it. Oh, I will say just to, cause I think you guys are the coolest, but Sam has probably one of my favorite papers that's come out in ID in the past couple of years. And that is they looked at cancer patients that have stenobacteremias and looked at their microbiome, not just from rectal swabs, which is how we usually assess it, but also from oral flora. So their mouth flora, and they found that cancer patients as they're undergoing chemo, as they're getting treated, as they're exposed to antibiotics, et cetera, they tend to become more colonized naturally, normally with steno than a standard patient. And then this is associated with their likelihood to have steno bacteremia Sam's now I'm like nervous. He's kind of staring at me in the zoom. Like, did I just, <laughs> did I summarize that appropriately? But I think it's just fascinating data and it's a really, really cool paper. It's outside the scope of this pod, but if you have a chance to check out Sam's work in that space, it's really cool. Um, okay. So Sam, assuming I said that right, since you're still kind of staring, very strange, very uncomfortable. I feel like um, I need to remind Sam that there is a general time limit for this podcast. Um, yeah, before, before yeah, before um, you, yeah, we need to wrap up here pretty soon, but Sam, talk to me about whatever you want to say about steno and including, I do want to focus. And we did this in episode one, uh, when we talked about Bactrim for CRE, but talk to us about, um, if you're using trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for steno, what dose we're generally aiming for, because I think I will say, I, I think people actually overdose Bactrim and I am one to overdose everything and be aggressive with dosing. And I think we're a little too aggressive. And I think this guidance document shines some light on that. So if you want to explain that to us. Uh, so yeah, thank you for bringing up the paper. I, I, I loved it. So I, I'm sorry if I, I, you felt like I was uh, staring. Uh, one thing that's, I think really cool. And this is my one aside that I'll take with this is that we saw also in there is that absolutely 100% carbapenems selected for steno. And if you actually do a dive into the literature on steno or previously xanthomonas or previously even before that pseudomonas maltophilia, it essentially didn't exist in the literature until imipenem became available. Like it just skyrocketed right after that, the number of publications on it, which I think is just a, an interesting thing. This is absolutely a drug that an organism that's selected for by carbapenem use. So anyways, uh, getting into the literature on uh, trimsulfa and, and how that dose came up is, as mentioned by both Pranita and Aaron at this point, is like the literature on, on trimsulfa is awful. It became the drug of choice just because this was the drug that was available that was active against steno uh, at the time that steno became a problem. So just like sulfadiazine uh, pyrimethamine is the drug of choice for, for toxo, it was just what was available at the time. Um, when people started having these infections. It's nothing intrinsic about the drug that makes it great. But it turns out that probably in comparison to the other reasonably active alternatives, minocycline and levofloxacin, it probably is, you know, it might be a little bit better, if not equivalent. So it's not like we came up with a great alternative to it. Really, the data supporting the use of Bactrim is it's what was done, and we don't have anything that can, has come along that's clearly better. 
Uh, and certainly we have equivalency studies, but I would argue that almost all the retrospective literature that's been published on steno is hopelessly confounded and just really doesn't, isn't helpful for informing our clinical decision-making. As far as the dosing goes, as Aaron mentioned, we definitely seem to overdose Bactrim. There's great uh, evidence from uh, the Mayo Clinic group that routinely does therapeutic drug monitoring of trimsulfa, and they show that standard dosing of, uh, say, 15 to 20 mg per kilo uh, really overshoots what we think are probably the therapeutic targets. That said, the PKPD literature for uh, steno is, or any gram negatives in, in uh, trim sulfa is also awful. And so we don't really know what the right target is. So there's just a general sense that we're probably over, overshooting our targets, whatever those might be, and potentially exposing patients at a higher risk for toxicity. Um, in some patients with young, you know, young patients with healthy kidneys, it probably doesn't matter, but there are very few young, healthy patients who have steno infections in the ICU that we're giving Bactrim to. So it, it probably is relevant there. And so we came down with this eight to 12 mix per kilo, which is nice in the middle range. And we suggested a, uh, considering a dose cap at 960 milligrams equivalent per day, which actually is in the PO package insert, believe it or not, for trim sulfa. I don't know when the last time, certainly I didn't dig that out until looking at this, um, but I don't know when the last time you looked at the trim sulfa package insert is, was, but that actually is in there for, to consider a dose cap. That's why I have you to tell me what's in the oral trim sulfa package insert. There you go. Yeah. Crafted in 1930 or whenever it was. Yeah. No, I love it. I think I love eight to eight to 12. That gets you a nice 10, which is really five mix per keg BID. And then you can just round to your 160 intervals for trimethoprim component. And it's beautiful. So I think mm -hmm. that's an important takeaway. Stop giving 20 mix per keg per day of trimethoprim sulfamethoxyl. It's a lot and it's not necessary. Even I'll say it for PJP, but that's beyond the scope of this. Anything else you guys want to say about steno? It seems to be a little bit more of a concise section, especially since there's only like six drugs that we even have breakpoints for. I think the one the one thing uh, to bring up that really hasn't been brought up is, is steno from a resistance perspective to beta-lactams is, is really interesting. It has a chromosomal metallobeta-lactamase, the L1, and a chromosomal cephalosporinase, L2. And so that forms just the same way as it does for metalloproducing um, enterobacterales, NDM producers especially, it forms the rational mechanistic basis for giving ceftazidime, abibactam plus as trianam combo therapy. And actually in vitro, this, this combination seems to be fantastic. Probably about 90% or so of isolates are susceptible to, to it in vitro. And there's actually some good case reports, I should say, uh, at this point of using that combination. Certainly something I've employed in my practice in patients who can't get shrimp sulfur for whatever reason. In a serious steno infection in a patient who can't get trim sulfa, this tends to be my go-to rather than say minocycline or levofloxacin. Levofloxacin uh, is another thing that, as Bernina mentioned, we have a sort of soft recommendation for. Steno is another one that has a chromosomal uh, quinolone resistance determined on there, SMQNR, which is sort of like a uh, quinolone binding site protection enzyme. And so that, that could potentially explain a, a decent amount of therapeutic failures and about 40% of patients develop resistance on therapy with Levo. So really not something we, we favored. So I, I think probably just to summarize the main thing uh, with, with steno is that the literature overall is pretty much terrible. Uh, trim sulfa seems to be the drug of choice for historic reasons. And then for serious infections, probably the best alternative we have, even though it's not a great one, is ceftazidime plus is trianam. 
Thank you for that. And with that, the time has come for our Breakpoints Faithful for our I Feel Nerdy section. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe space for closing segments for our panelists to nerd out over our favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts, even though, I mean, that's what we've been doing for the past hour, basically. Uh, But for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you guys to share your favorite mechanism of resistance in a pathogen. So you can't, again, can't just say AMC. We've been through that. There's specifics here. So your bug and its mechanism of resistance and why. Pranita, do you want to start? (laughs) Yes. No, this is very exciting. And this is kind of like asking us to pick our favorite child. So, but I, you know, one um, resistance enzyme I've been exploring more recently are the GES. It's spelled G-E-S. It stands for Guyana Extended Spectrum Enzymes. Um, They were first described in the late 90s in in actually a Kleb isolate from a patient hospitalized in French Guyana. So that's a neighbor of Brazil. Um, But then now they're much more prevalent in pseudomonas compared with enterobacterialis. And my interest in this was actually inspired by a young man hospitalized in the Johns Hopkins burn unit. It's very unfortunate. His, His first day on the job as an electrician and he got electrocuted and had this unfortunate exit injury with a skull osteo very difficult to treat pseudomonas, resistant to all of our novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. So it, it was pretty awful. Of course, it was a very lovely family. Um, we sequenced the isolate and found this guess, and I'll, I'm super embarrassed. I meant to like re- email Robert Bonomo, is it guess or Jess? I'm going to go with guess because it's Guyana. So, but, uh, but I support you. Totally wrong. It feels um, right. Just say it. 100% is Jif, and, and I will, I will <laughs> die on that hill. Are you talking this about peanut? Are you talking about peanut butter or like the things you text pictures <laughs> oh, of? The the, pic, the moving pictures you text. It's a GIF. The moving pictures. Is oh, that okay. Yes. Um, I think it's guess. That said, we're good with the GIF. I think it, I think we'll it's go guess. With guess for this too. Yeah. Um, but basically, so this the guests are are class A beta lactamases. They're actually considered ESBLs, even though point mutations seem to expand their substrate utilization. And we've actually found quite a few case reports. Um, in the literature about them being resistant to these new, newer beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors like Septaltezo, Septazavi, just like our patient. And I was actually sort of surprised to find how many outbreaks have been reported in ICUs in the literature across the world. My guess is in the US, because we're not, none of our um, uh, FDA clear diagnostics detect this mechanism of resistance. And obviously we're not sequencing all our drug-resistant pseudomonas isolates, so we're probably missing it a lot. But it was kind of eye-opening to see that this en- this enzyme that's actually considered quote an ESBL is pretty ca- is capable of hydrolyzing some of our really most robust beta-lactam beta-lactamase inhibitors. So something exciting to think about. And if anyone has a really large pseudomonas collection in the U.S., it would be nice to see um, how how often these are being identified. That was a perfect. I feel nerdy. Had all the things. Patient case. <laughs> and heels, the nice thing is this patient learning. Um, it, it was, his isolate was susceptible to sifiderocal, so we ended up using that along with phage therapy. He's a year out, and he's doing really, really well, so that's also a very nice nice part of the story. Yay, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. All right, Sam, that's pretty hard to top, so good luck. Yeah, I'm not necessarily going to even try to top that, um, although I do have a great trivia question related to that. So French Guiana is actually an overseas department of France and it has equal status in the country to any one of their uh, departments, uh, you, you know, even around Paris or whatever. So actually the largest land border that France shares with the country is Brazil, believe it or not. 
because of that status of French Guiana as an overseas department. So that's that's great bar trivia right there. Only uh, Sam. Oh, only you, listeners. This uh, makes me. This definitely makes me want to go to the bar with you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very. Um, will you tell me about your favorite resistance mechanism? Probably my favorite is, believe it or not, not in a gram negative. It's actually daptomycin resistance in strep mitis. Cecilia Tran and Cesar Arias's lab in Nagendra Mishra at, uh, out in California have done great work on this. And it's such a cool little thing. It, it's sort of altruistic resistance. So strep mitis lives in these little pairs and chains. And what happens in dapto-resistant strep, or strep mitis at least, is that one pairing of strep mitis takes the hit for the team. So all of the daptomycin binds to this one little organism and all the other ones are free to like cause problems and whatever. But you just have all of the daptomycin you give binding to one single organism that just gets like absolutely destroyed, I guess. But the other ones are free to cause infection. So I, I think that's a really cool sort of altruistic resistance mechanism. And as far as I know, that's unique to strep mitis. It's not what the mechanism is in Staph aureus by any means or enterococcus. It's just strep mitis does this where one organism sucks up all the dapto and takes the hit for the team. That is absolutely fascinating. That might be my... that. Those were both so good. Thank you guys for making I Feel Nerdy the best segment of the podcast. That was awesome. And with that, we are at the wrap of our second episode. And so um, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Pranita Tama and Dr. Sam Aiken. This episode reviewed the second guidance document from the IDSA on the treatment of resistant gram-negative pathogens. And be sure to check out last week's episode where we reviewed the first three pathogens in the first document. This episode was produced by Jillian Hayes and Rachel Britt. It was edited and peer-reviewed by Kelly Hanahan, Julie Justo, and Travis Jones. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafant. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Ann Justo and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. 